Welcome to the EAU podcast. In this edition, we have Professor Dr. Fadod O'Kelly, a member of the EAU Guidelines Panel for Pediatric Urology, discussing nocturnal enuresis, also known as bedwetting, to promote World Bedwetting Day 2022. Professor O'Kelly is a consultant pediatric and adolescent urological surgeon working in Dublin, Ireland. He is an assistant professor at University College Dublin and a senior lecturer in the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Can you tell me a little bit about how common a problem nocturnal enuresis is? Many thanks indeed for inviting me onto the podcast. That's a that's a really important question. I suppose monosymptomatic nocturnal enuresis is a very common symptom in children. It can affect up to 20% of five-year-olds, 5 to 10% of 10-year-olds, and even 1% to 2% of teenagers who all still wet the bed on a regular basis. It certainly seems to affect males more than females, with boys being affected about twice as often. And interestingly, there's a spontaneous yearly resolution rate of about 15% at any age, uh, but this unfortunately can occur right into adulthood. It can certainly be a really stressful time for both the child and their caregivers. Uh, There's associated lower quality of life compared to controls, and bedwetting can influence relationships with friends and family. And therefore, we really recommend the treatment is advised from about the age of six or seven, taking into account mental status, family expectations, uh, social issues, and even cultural background. Parents seem to worry most about the social impacts uh, and, and what effect this is going to have on their schooling, uh, class trips, sports tours. Uh, there's lots of guilt on behalf of the parents and a sense of help, helplessness as well. How would you define nocturnal enuresis and is it a heritable condition? Yeah, so nocturnal enuresis or bedwetting can be divided into either primary or secondary. If if it's secondary enuresis, that implies that the child has been previously dry for a period of about six months. It's also really important to take into account daytime symptoms as it may affect both uh, primary and secondary um, and this further leads us on to a definition of what we call monosymptomatic or non-monosymptomatic uh, enuresis. So monosymptomatic primary nocturnal enuresis would simply be defined as bedwetting in a child who has never previously been dry for a period of six months, and that's really their only issue. When you talk about non-monosymptomatic, it often includes things like daytime symptoms as well. The latter, I suppose, non-monosymptomatic primary nocturnal enuresis um, does have an association with lower urinary tract symptoms during the day. And this may be in the form of lower urinary tract dysfunction, recurrent UTIs, or even bowel dysfunction. As with daytime symptoms, the presence of constipation the presence of constipation has a negative association with bladder capacity. Uh, there's a very clear hereditary uh, influence in bedwetting. Um, if you had no immediate relatives whatsoever, you have about a 15% chance of wetting the bed. If one of your parents or an, another immediate family member is affected, uh, that risk goes up to about 44%. And if both your parents are affected, that risk goes up to uh, a quite a, a large 77%. However, from a genetic point of view, enuresis is a complex and heterogeneous disorder, 
And so specific genes have been implicated and, and specific uh, loci on those genes have been implicated on chromosomes 12, 13 and 22. Are there any non-genetic risk factors to increase the likelihood of bedwetting in children? Yeah, there are some non-genetic risk factors to bear in mind. I think the first thing to consider here is whether there are associated daytime bladder and bowel symptoms in the form of lower urinary tract dysfunction and or constipation as these are modifiable and will definitely have an impact on nocturnal storage and voiding. Aside from this, there are a number of key areas of research at the moment um, and these include things like disruption of a child's sleep microstructure and an imbalance of what we now consider to be natural circadian rhythms that govern voiding. Uh, this has led to the concept of chronobiology of micturition, and it sounds very complicated, but it just really means that hardwired within the brain and spinal cord is a natural pattern of voiding for children uh, which varies between the daytime and the nighttime and children who might have things like high arousal thresholds to wake at nighttime um, or just be extremely deep sleepers which is something that you always hear about um, this can affect that despite the fact that they might have full bladders and it's interesting because having a full bladder is a pretty noxious stimulus for um, getting you to drop whatever you're doing and and use the bathroom because it is a very, very hard thing to ignore. Uh, and yet some of these children do that at nighttime. There also may be an imbalance between nocturnal urinary output and nocturnal capacity. Uh, there's another area of research as well which shows a high correlation between nocturnal urine production and sleep disordered breathing through obstructive sleep apnea or enlarged tonsillar or adenoidal beds. Uh, there's a thing called a BEARS questionnaire, B-E-A-R-S, which is actually a really useful screening survey and addresses the following five points. One, bedtime problems. Two, excessive daytime sleepiness. Three, awakening at night, which includes things like sleepwalking and or nightmares. Uh, four, regularity and dur duration of sleep. So basically, is a child getting enough sleep? And five, dis sleep disordered breathing. So are they a noisy or a restless sleeper? It's also known that uh, aside from this, obesity is associated with a higher incidence of bedwetting and a lower efficacy for treatment. There have been uh, associations uh, made between having an atopic or allergic predisposition as a risk factor for nocturnal enuresis. And finally, uh, certain neurodevelopment, uh, neuropsychiatric developmental disorders such as ADHD have been associated with a higher resistance to treatment in primary nocturnal enuresis. How do you diagnose nocturnal enuresis? The correct diagnosis can be challenging uh, and the condition is often misunderstood. Uh, the key in the history is really to differentiate between mono and non-monosymptomatic uh, nocturnal enuresis, primary versus secondary nocturnal enuresis, and the presence of comorbid factors such as behavioral or psychological problems and things like sleep disordered breathing. And all these things need to be um, really understood before you um, can make a correct decision on the appropriate management algorithm here. And so basically you need to spend a little bit of time with your patients and their parents and 
In addition to this, it's important to complete fluid voiding and stooling calendars. I often see patients who do a lot of sports in the evening. And one big issue is that 30 to 50% of their overall daily fluid intake may be after dinner time as the child is just thirsty. And it becomes a much as much an exercise in change management and education as it is in treating the wet the wetting. Other issues like constipation or fecal incontinence is found in approximately 20% of bedwetters and, and can have a direct effect on treatment outcomes. Weighing pull-ups or sheets at nighttime and adding these to the first morning void can also elucidate the presence of polyuria, uh, which is um, uh, defined as either greater than 130% of the age-adjusted bladder capacity or greater than 20% of the overall urine volume in, uh, during a 24-hour period. Uh, other things that are important as well include a physical examination, which should be performed with special attention paid to the uh, child's back to exclude any neurological problems, the external genitalia and surrounding skin, as well as the condition of the clothes, um, uh, such as whether they have wet underwear or evidence of encoparesis. Urine analysis is indicated if there's a sudden onset of bedwetting uh, and if there is a suspicion or history of UTIs or inexplicable polydipsia, uh, one of the main things here as well is simply just exclude a, a positive uh, glucose uh, strip on the urinalysis. I would also perform uroflometry and PVRs in the presence of daytime symptoms. I think it's important to remember the secondary nocturnal enuresis may be associated with stress anxiety under depression. It's important to have a frank discussion with parents and children, sometimes separately, to assess if there are any issues within the home or school um, areas such as bullying, neglect, psychological or physical abuse, or stressful events, which can range from marital disharmony or breakdown to the, even to the arrival of a new sibling. What are the strategies used to manage nocturnal enuresis? So this is a tricky question, uh, and having gone through um, your full diagnostics, the, the next step is what you do about this. I think the first step is always to educate and reassure both the child and their caregiver. You should acknowledge the potential negative impacts, impact that this can have on the family and extended social units. It's really important to get buy-in from the child and uh, and the caregiver as this will affect both compliance and outcomes. There are a few general heuristics here as well. And as much as I don't like heuristics, I think it's uh, they can be quite useful sometimes. Uh, the first is to assess uh, daily eating and drinking habits and to allow for sporting activities. Um, other things include... Um, putting away electronic devices and uh, avoiding blue screen use in the evening before bedtime as these can affect sleep patterns. You need to consider making referrals to psychology and or ENT depending on the findings from the history and physical exam. You have to understand that parental stress levels are higher compared to parents of non-bedwetting children with subsequent anger being the most common response and it is critical not to punish these children. In general, pull-ups at night time should be avoided during active treatment as they provide no positive educational impact or benefit to the child and can prolong the issue unless the child actually resents wearing them. They can be employed if you're simply adopting a wait-and-see policy at home. 
lifting children at night time has had very mixed results in the in the literature, but it can be utilized unless sleep is being disturbed as a result. The arguments against lifting are often that either the child is so asleep that they don't really realize they're going to the toilet and therefore there's no positive impact, or the child wakes up, realizes they're going to the toilet, but you've then disrupted their sleep cycles. A Cochrane review has shown no benefit for treatments such as hypnosis, psychotherapy, acupuncture, um, uh, chiropractic or medicinal herbs for the treatment of uh, bedwetting. And at present, there is a poor evidence base for the use of electroneuromodulation. Wetting alarms are a very common thing to use. They're recommended as uh, first-line treatment for nocturnal enuresis. They rely on the use of a device that is activated by getting wet. This then sends uh, either a, a physical impulse in the, in the form of a buzz or it would uh, set off an alarm. The goal of this is that the child wakes up through this acoustic or tactile uh, stimulus um, either by themselves or with the help of a caregiver uh, and therefore you condition the child. The latest review has shown that alarm treatment will reduce the number of wet nights per week. Uh, the recommended length of therapy uh, with the alarm treatment uh, continues to be uncertain and it varies from anywhere between 8 to 20 weeks. Uh, but compliance is of the utmost importance. In terms of medical treatment, uh, following the implementation of conservative dietary and lifestyle measures, uh, desmopressin or a combination of oral desmopressin uh, and an anticholinergic drug can be considered with success rates of about 70%. Nasal desmopressin is no longer recommended due to the theoretical risk of um, uh, overdosing. The dose of each of these uh, medications can be gradually increased and predictive factors for success with desmopressin include older children, children with fewer wet nights, nocturnal polyuria and a prior good response with low dose treatment. Enuresis alarms and desmopressin treatment have a comparable efficacy in achieving greater greater than a 50% reduction in wet nights and multimodal treatment can achieve a partial or a full response in up to 80% of children. Thank you for joining Professor Dr. Fadod O'Kelly for this episode of EAU Podcasts on Nocturnal Enuresis. For further information on the EAU guidelines on paediatric urology, please visit our website www.euroweb.org forward slash guidelines. Further podcasts will be posted regularly on EAU guidelines topics. For more EAU podcasts, please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to our EAU podcast channel for regular updates. <laughs> <laughs>